Hi, I'm Paul Camillos. Join me and my co-host Jacinta Gavin for Series 4 of Shooting the Breeze. We cover women's hoops and women in hoops. We talk to inspiring players, amazing coaches and the legends behind the scenes and at the grassroots of the game. During this series we'll be covering the FIBA Women's World Cup where the 12 best teams of the planet are coming to Sydney. And of course, we'll be covering Australia's longest running women's professional sporting league, the WNBL, in its 43rd season. Hit that subscribe button, like and review so we can get more Hoops content to you. This week we shoot the breeze on some high octane WNBL action. Before we get into the full throttle start of this WNBL season, we take a quick diversion to an exhibition the Shooting the Breeze crew and friends attended at Backyard at the Alex. With great food and company, we got to see an exhibition of pickup portraits by recent pod guest, photographer Nick Lawrence. You gotta make sure to check it out. Then we ride the proverbial highs and lows of the first two rounds of the best women's hoops in the country. There were eye-watering stat lines, gut-wrenching injuries, and in between those highs and lows, we saw young talent emerge across the league as teams look to gain an edge in a tough season. And there's lots more. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining me this week, my co-host Jacinta Govind, and this week... It's another show about nothing in particular. Jacinta, <laughs> how are you doing? Not too bad, thank you. Still recovering from the eventful week that was last week for me. I had to take a day off work today just to catch up on some sleep. Oh. Um, I like to live at large apparently in my, <laughs> my old age. Still thinking I can do all of the things and running on empty, but that is just unrealistic these days, so... That's how I am. How are you going? Yeah, not too bad. I mean, I I got to be honest. I really enjoyed last Thursday night when we went to to backyard at the Alex for Nick's show. It was uh, it was great. I I loved the way they had the pub set out, the photos all the way around, um, in all the different rooms. The beer garden at the back was fantastic, and we had a great night for it as well. Uh, it was great catching up with uh, a lot of people. In some cases, we last time we saw them was at the World Cup. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All those weeks and a couple months ago now, that was the last time we saw people. But uh, I guess for context, if people hadn't uh, listened to the last couple episodes, our friend Nick Lawrence is a portrait photographer and he launched his new exhibition called Pick Up People, which features portraits of basketballers from all around Australia and I think parts of the world as well who play pick up basketball. Um, and it's at the Alex in Alexandria, which is just a suburb in Sydney. Yes, and we did a, a, an episode about the exhibition and about Nick's journey to becoming a portrait photographer as well not too long ago on Shooting the Breeze. So that's the context. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly recommend you go back and um, do a bit of a review. Absolutely. And don't forget, get down to look at those photos. It was kind of interesting. Just out of the blue, there was... Um, a guy who showed up to Nick's event. He's the father of uh, a, a girl that used to dance with uh, my eldest daughter. 
and I haven't seen him for like a few years. And he just rolled in, and turns out that he, um, caught, that Nick was saying that Max actually helped him, you know, when he first came to Sydney and got into photography. So it's a small world. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, and I even saw some because uh, Nick, you know, is spending some time on the Central Coast, and that's how I, we met at the Sunday scrimmage down here at Terry Gall. And so it was funny that went all the way to Sydney to celebrate Nick's exhibition and to see the STB crew and some of our uh, loyal listeners and friends. And then I ended up spending a lot of time just talking to other people from the Central Coast. So went all the way to Sydney just to talk to my friends from the Central Coast. But also probably one of the best cheeseburgers I've had in a long time. Oh, was it what? It was yeah, amazing. Wow. Wow. And I don't know if it's because I was also particularly hungry, but it was an excellent cheeseburger. It's still on my mind. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, look, we, um, we all had cheeseburgers and got to say, without a doubt, one of the best cheeseburgers I've ever had. In fact, we're thinking about maybe getting down there again this week for a cheeseburger. Yeah, and I think we kind of declared it as unofficially the new STV hangout when the <laughs> Flames and Kings start doing some of their double headers. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely make that a stop. Okay, so we're two weeks into WNBL season, and I think one of the things that really struck me about week one was the scores of the games. It was just amazing, the number of 100-point games that we had in that first week. What do you think of that one? Yeah, I guess it always uh, naturally, if you haven't watched the games and you're going by the scoreline, I think your first inclination is that a lot of defense probably wasn't played or perhaps, you know, defense from each team wasn't played at the standard or intensity that was desired. But at the same time, you had teams like Townsville who were just lighting it up. And yeah. for the first game out of out of the block for a lot of these teams to be shooting such high percentages and high scoring games, I think some credit still needs to be due to that, to that kind of level of intensity on the offensive end of being able to shoot such a high clip for the first game, not really needing any time to settle in or to build any more team chemistry on the floor. Um, I think that was made it really, really exciting that there were such high-scoring games. But I think Sarah Blissars did go on the WNBL uh, podcast with Megan Huswick to say that the Southside Flyers in particular were going to ensure their defense improved in round two. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not surprised by that. But, yeah, that was – look, that Townsville game particularly was just astounding. Um, I think it was – was it 100 and, 104 points mm. in that first game? And I think it really surprised me that, that we were getting those sorts of numbers. And they were definitely on fire. But how long has it been since we've seen, you know, a round in the WNBL where you've had multiple games at over 100 points? Oh, gosh. Oh, I mean, if ever? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think oh, it must be either a long time, if ever, where we've had such a, a huge scoring round one or maybe perhaps even a, a huge scoring round overall. Yeah. But, yeah, it was quite outstanding. And I think, um, you know, the whole defence conversation to the side, I think considering it was round one, people were very excited to be back going to live games at regular capacity, you know, pre-COVID capacity yep. and off the back of the FIBA Women's World Cup that we just had in Sydney. I think it was probably a good way to relaunch the WNBL back to pre-COVID standards, you know, having a really exciting, high-scoring, 
high octane round just to get everyone, all the fans back into it. Um, I'm not mad about it. Oh, no. No, no, I'm not mad about it either. I was, I was just kind of surprised. It was mm. a real surprise. It was like, wow, there's more than one game we've gotten into triple figures. And I can't remember ever around that was bringing in numbers like that. You know, I mean, there were some pretty interesting individual scores that came out of that first round too. And I think one of the one of the real surprise packages was um, Izzy Borlais. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so she did play one game for Adelaide technically last season, so it yeah. wasn't a rookie game. But, I mean, I think don't think she played very many minutes. Perhaps it was just a couple of seconds on court. So a lot of people are still considering that opening game against the Flyers of yeah. all the teams. This season, she scores 25 points against the Flyers. So she was going up the, against the likes of LJ, Carly Ernst, Abby Bishop, you know, players in her similar position that have paved the way before her. She is tough. And this wasn't a game either where she just happened to score 25 points on a fluke. She is tough and she's smart. She's a very confident player for 18 years old. Um, I feel like you know, even though in this in round two she didn't back it up with scoring, but she definitely backed it up with her confidence and how well she carries herself on the court considering now she's a full-time rostered player for the first time. Um, I was super impressed with her. Yeah, I thought that she did did amazingly well and she backed it up with really good performance in round two as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's I really like how much faith Coach Hurst for the Adelaide Lightning is putting into her bench. Uh, especially yep. in round two, she played a, pretty much all of her bench except for Sam Simons. I'm not too sure why she didn't play Sam Simons. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, otherwise Izzy Borlais was great. Yeah, really, really good for both rounds. Yeah, I think, you know, a real find for this season. be great to see how she progresses across the rest of the season, but certainly these first two rounds have been pretty spectacular performances. Mm. Yeah, and <laughs> Lauren Nicholson that first round. Oh, she had something to prove, didn't she? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think she's had, I mean, I don't know for a fact, but based on what I've seen in the last 12 months in terms of the way she's played, I guess her body language and stuff, you know, even going back to last season, I feel like she's had um, a bit of a growth period, a bit of a rough patch where it, it happens in everyone's career. You can be sailing along really well and for no particular reason you just kind of go a bit of a rough patch you get a little bit out of sync with your skill set or your body and you're just not performing as well as you normally would feel like that was her last 12 months and considering she got so close again to making the opals team this time for the world cup i feel like that was probably weighing on her mind a little bit um but she came out with a bang certainly something to prove in that first round and good on her i love to see it i love to see her fighting back uh, in the way that we know her, you know, to do. Yeah, tough player, and you know, both rounds she's been she's been in there playing tough. I think the one game that really surprised me out of round two, mm-hmm. bef- before we get into you know some other things that have happened these first two rounds, the Flames. Mm. I was surprised by the size of the gap between the score lines, mm. but looking at the numbers. It was really just down to that sec- the second quarter. Everything else, you know, statistically seemed to be reasonably close. So I got I got to say I was a bit surprised by that. Hopefully, you know, that is the first game for the Flames. I think most other teams have played between two or three games. 
Yeah, that's right. So their first game was against Bendigo, and Bendigo had already, yeah, had two, maybe three games already up their sleeve. And their first game of the season was away, so that doesn't help either. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, for the, from the sake of the Flames, I mean, it, like you said before, statistically it looked pretty even. Quarter by quarter, you're right. It was very close, uh, except Bendigo won the second quarter by 13 and the third quarter by six. Otherwise, there was only a couple points in it in the first and fourth quarter. But the biggest stats that stood out to me that game was the rebound count. Mm-hmm. So Bendigo out-rebounded Sydney Flames 53 to 30. So- Ouch. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a that's yeah. So generally, uh, if you want to dominate the game and dominate the possession and have more possessions in the game and things like that, you want to be on top of the rebound count. So the fifty three to the thirty is the one stat that stood out. Other interesting stat though that stood out is that Bendigo had eighteen turnovers and the Flames only had nine. So typically you'd want to, you'd probably expect to see that flipped. The losing team, losing by 20, would have 18 turnovers. So that was interesting that the Spirit gave away that many turnovers. I'm sure they'll tighten that up in the next couple of rounds. But otherwise, its shooting percentage for the Flames was uh, not what you would expect. They were mm. 30% field goal percentage, 34% from the two-point range, 24 from the three-point range. Um, and another big stat they were talking about during the game was of Bendigo's 77 points, 48 of them were from the paint. Oof. So if we go back to our WNBL preview podcast we did a couple of weeks ago, yep. I think I made the point of Sydney are just going to get exploited inside. I mean, that stat just says it all. So... Well, obviously, it's good. there's going to have to be some adjustments to that because there's a lot of teams out there with a lot of height mm. and they're going to have to come up with some way to be able to counter that height um, so that they're not getting punished like that in the paint. Mm. Yeah, they're going to have to come up with something pretty pretty creative. There's definitely ways uh, that they can help counteract their lack of height. But, yeah, I, th- I think they're going to have to do that sooner rather than later because who have they got coming up next? This weekend? Good question. Because I know that they're playing away because they've got their first four games away, I think. Uh, yeah, it's Perth and Adelaide. Perth and Adelaide. There you go. So you've got Scherf for Perth and Jesse Edwards and Chloe Bibby. Yep. Uh, so that's going to be your height for Perth. And some of their guards have probably got – a bit of a height advantage over the Flames guards as well. So Clinch Hoycart plays on the outside, Alex Sharp as well. And then Adelaide, I mean, Adelaide's got Talbot, Munro, Kirsten Bell. I mean, Kirsten Bell typically plays on the outside too, but she's got height and length over most of Sydney as well. So, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be tough for Sydney to try and counteract that, but they, I'm sure they'll come up with some creative ways to compensate yeah, well, hopefully they can they can utilise the speed of the guards to be able to try and get positioned faster than the, the opposing team with the height mm. and get the shot off quick, you would hope. Because if not, it, it could be ugly again. I, I really hope they find a way to adjust on this one. Um, but also I'm thinking, you know, that first result, first game, first round they didn't, they didn't play, so... It's been a bit of time between games for them between the preseason and, and this first round that they mm. played. Yeah, no, it definitely has. Yes, they haven't really been dealt a very easy path 
into the start of their WNBL season? No, I think their first home game, I think it's the 4th of December. It's a double header with the Kings at Kudos. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Okay, the other thing that kind of came out of this these first couple of rounds is injuries. Oh, dear. Oh, gosh. Injuries. And the Caps got kind of mashed on that. Oh, gosh. I feel so sad for the Caps. I mean, they brand-new team, brand-new coach, all young, and then just to lose two of their main players within days or yeah. a week of each other, I mean, like, that's really kicking someone when they're down. <laughs> that's so I f- really feel for them. Yeah, getting injuries like that so early in the piece, particularly where it means that you're going to be without players for, you know, two to six weeks, the way the competition's been setting itself up right from the start where it's it's punishingly hard competition, it's not helpful for the Caps. No, no, not at all. Like, you know, the potential of playing two games around, sometimes one home, sometimes one away, sometimes both away, yeah. um, that's already a pretty insane schedule. The fact that, you know, Gemma Potter had made her way back to the court, had a great NBL 1 South season for Dandenong, made her way back to the WNBL court just to do an ACL again. I mean, so many, I was talking to a lot of people when that happened and everyone's heart just broke for her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, knowing that she's done it. Apparently it's actually on the other leg. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like... It is the worst possible luck. Oh, such bad luck. Such bad luck. And, you know, it's unfortunately a common story. Like, I mean, how many of our WNBL and female Aussie ballers do we know have now done multiple ACLs? Yeah. And Christy Wallace, unfortunately, had to do the same thing. Um, I'm pretty sure, didn't KG23 do an ACL? At some stage, because I remember there was a time where Kelsey and Wally were rehabbing together. Was it an ACL or an MCL? Um, I, I can't, I'm not sure. Yes, but, yeah, it's just all too common story, unfortunately. So you had Gemma with her ACL in yep. the first round, which is heartbreaking, in the first quarter as well. Yeah, I know. It's- so not even at the end of the game where she's, you know, naturally fatigued, you know, because she would have played lots in the first quarter. Uh, Jade Melbourne goes down with an ankle, but she tells me that she'll be out for like, I think she said three to four weeks. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's what I've heard, three to four weeks. Yeah. She's pretty positive so far. She says, I'll be back on court no time, you know, it's only three to four weeks. Um, But she would be very eager to get on the court, I'm sure. But then we also heard the news that Lily Scanlon from the Boomers has essentially withdrawn uh, to take care of herself as well. Yep. I think with an Achilles injury or must have been an ongoing Achilles issue for her to have to withdraw with no return date. So it must sound pretty serious and perhaps more of a reflection of an overuse injury than anything. Yeah, and I think Lou Brown was also out for one round with a, some sort of a niggly injury. Was it the first round, I think? I think she, she from my understanding, she had an injured finger or something like that. Mm. And... um. She was at the end of the bench and would only play if they really needed her. So I think she went on a little bit at the end and just trying to nurse the finger while she played. But, again, another frustrating injury where it's just a finger. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of your body is intact and fit and ready to go. But, obviously, your fingers are so involved in the game and in 
such a threat of being re-injured. It feels a bit silly when you're a player and you have to sit out and when you've got a finger injury or a hand injury. You know, look, let me say, I hope I'm wrong, but the level of competition that that we've seen in these first two rounds, given how hard everybody's been playing, because everybody's been, it's been 110%. It's all out on the floor. It makes me worry what's going to happen later in the season because, as you said, the number of games, it's a tough schedule. Mm, yeah, and, the, and so far the games have been uh, quite physical as well and a lot yeah. of calls are, you know, aren't being called, which is fine. Like not saying either way that's good or bad, but it has been physical. So I think people, like you said, with the schedule might need to be a little bit mindful of their recovery and things like that, um, which I'm sure they are. They've got lots of good teams behind, you know, um, treating teams behind the players and things like that. So I'm sure that will be taken care of. But uh, it's just interesting, you know, we've talked about Potter, Melbourne, Scanlon with those kind of serious injuries and, you know, Zatina as well now. Yep. Is out with injury. She was seen with crutches and a boot in the game against Adelaide, sitting on the sideline, and she's going to have some scans. But I'm not too sure if we've been informed of the outcome of those scans just yet. But the thing that kind of stands out for me is they're all players, perhaps maybe not so much Satina, but I know Gemma Potter, Scan, Lily Scanlon, and Jade Melbourne. They're all players that were at the COE together. Yep, they're all that same age group. So I'm not too sure if that's a reflection of you know, how much they've just, you know, since finishing at the COE, they've just been playing and playing and playing like a lot mm. um, and perhaps not having a lot of balance between cross-training and rest time and recovery. But, yeah, I just thought it was interesting that they're all from the same age group and from the same group. Uh, and, there's, and there's also that NBL one season as well. Mm, that's right, yeah. So, so having really had a lot of rest from basketball for a while. Yeah, and also... Kalani Purcell. Yeah, so this was um, quite a quite a shock as well, and which is unfortunate. You know, announcing she's had to leave for the rest of the season for personal reasons. So yep. before the season started, we had Talia to pay say a similar thing as well. She was unable to then fulfil her contract at Caps for personal reasons. So um, yeah, but the news about Kalani was quite a surprise. So we're hoping that she's okay, but big loss for the Flames, but big loss for the league as well. Yeah. Losing these players, I mean, look, losing the players obviously gives opportunities to younger players to come in, but the teams lose that experience, the teams lose those quality players, and it's going to affect the way the teams play because they've got to adjust to not having these people that they were expecting to have on the team. They would have built up a lot of their sets and rotations based around having those individuals available, and then, you know, they're not. So there's going to be a lot of adjustments. So I'm guessing, you know, that also is going to be affecting some of the performances that we're seeing at this early part of the season. Yeah, and and with Purcell out for the Flames, that's another experienced, strong player under the basket that they're missing as well. And I guess we did see that when they played against Bendigo, as we already mentioned, they were missing some presence in the paint. But they've got Steph Bairstow now from Queensland coming in to fill in Purcell's spot, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Uh, but, yeah, so there's been a lot of movements and injuries and things like that in this season so far, and it's only just been round two. Yeah, you kind of you think about everything that's happened and then you go, wow, round two only. Mm. What's going to happen over the next number of rounds that we've got coming down a pipe? What's going to happen? What are we going to see? How are things going to change? Look, 
I gotta say, it's it's shaping up to be an amazingly great WNBL season. One of the other things I wanted to talk about, and I'd like to get your your feedback on this. And again, I know it's it's early days yet. I think one of the things that's really impressed me is the performances that we've been seeing in terms of some of the the coaching and the coaching staff. And it was it was one of the things that was really apparent in the last round is the way that the coaching staff and all together seem to be working as a unit, you know, because look, for some teams you see them and, and it's always the head coach that's really sort of calling the shots and, you know, taking point. Whereas one of the things I've noticed in watching some of the games is it appears that the coaching staff for, for some of the teams seem to be working more as, as a combined unit. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. No, I haven't, to be honest. I feel like a lot of teams have generally done, I don't know, maybe, yeah, I, I haven't noticed that, to, to be honest. I haven't noticed it enough either for it to be a difference either compared to other seasons. I think perhaps because I've, I've seen, you know, Veerly coach before and I know the types of coaches that Veerly has worked with before. You know, she worked with Gorry so much with the Caps as well and I know that Gorry is also a very inclusive coach of, you know, his assistants and getting their contribution as well. So perhaps sometimes if you were kind of an assistant coach, an emerging coach in that environment where you were expected to contribute or your contribution was, you know, highly valued by the head coach, when you're a head coach, maybe that's the way that you, the same way that you like to adopt your coaching style as well. But I honestly haven't noticed. I think it's something that I'm probably more used to anyway, so I didn't really notice it to be much of a difference this time around. But um, it's good to see because there is a lot of different moving parts of the game and more and more all these different types of ways to measure statistics and uh, outputs and things like that are becoming more and more of a thing. So you've got to kind of have a lot more of the coaching staff on board to um, make sure you kind of go over parts of the game with a fine-tooth comb. I know that even in some sports in America, like particularly in gridiron, they have a defensive coach and an offensive coach and then the head manager and whatever. And I know that in, in, in basketball there are some coaches who are allocated, you know, scouting for different teams rather than making the head coach do all the scouting than the assistant coaches will be responsible for scouting particular teams and bringing that to the table. I think Fleur, when we spoke to her in our episode, mentioned how she's responsible for scouting particular teams and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I haven't noticed it to be any different, to be honest. Yeah, it was something It was something that was also mentioned uh, during the, the Adelaide game where the sideline commentary was that um, Nat Hurst would actually – in a couple of the the timeouts, would actually leave it to the assistant coach to be talking to the team rather than her talking to the team. Um, So it's kind of interesting. And and like you said, the whole role of coaching is changing because it's now there is so much to stay on top of. Hmm. Um, Now, you don't want basketball to get to the point where it is with gridiron where you've got nearly as many coaches as you've got players. Yeah. And I think the other thing is using your example of letting the assistant coach, you know, run the timeout. I think the best thing about that for me, I've been lucky to be in those situations where it's a timeout and you go to the head coach and go, look, this is how I see it. How do you feel about this? And if they think it's really good, then they go, yeah, that sounds great. Why don't you implement it? And so you're upskilling the coach as well. So 
not only valuing their contribution and uh, for what they're seeing, letting them control the timeout and give that feedback directly, I think you're upskilling the coach as well. So it's a win-win situation in my eyes. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. And I think it's it speaks to the maturity of the league now and it's speaking to the maturity of the skill set that's being brought to the coaching staff for, for each of the teams, that that's happening. And I think also it, it gives the coaches the opportunity that if they do see something that maybe somebody else hasn't seen or hasn't noticed, they got the confidence to be able to bring it out and say, hey, listen, I've noticed this is happening and maybe if we could adjust against that move or stop this particular player, we, we can maybe get an advantage. And the fact that they're getting that opportunity, it's got to be a good thing. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. So, you know, what else has been for you something that you think is is interesting that maybe nobody's really talked about in these first couple of rounds? I think there's been, because like admittedly, I couldn't watch a lot of the games live because I was tied up with some other creative projects instead that clashed. Yep. Um, so I'm still catching up on lots of the games. I feel like there were parts of the games as well, especially in round two, where, you know, Adelaide played a lot of their bench and I thought that was great, even in a tight game that they had against Townsville. And then Bendigo managed to get on some of their bench in the most recent game against Sydney. And I like love seeing things like that. But then you had like Ruby Porter, who played the last 58 seconds in the game against Sydney. She is a young athlete who I think went to the COE and played um, for the Australian junior team. She was at the University of Nebraska with some other Aussies like Jay Shelley and Izzy Bourne, and then she chose to finish her college career early and come home. So she just had an NBL1 uh, North season with the Darwin Salties. Then she got signed by Bendigo, which wasn't announced, which is weird. Yep. But she she hit a three. Like I'm pretty sure that was her debut WNBL points in that game. She hit a three, so I would have liked some more noise made about stuff like that. Maddie Allen as well, I'm pretty sure she hit her debut points as well in the WNBL for Sydney in the same game. She is a guard who played for the Spartans in the NBL 1 North competition. So little things like that. I mean, we already talked about Izzy Bollet's. Little things like that. I mean, Amy Atwell is in the team of the week. Yep. Someone who I was super excited about. Chloe Bibby, who I was also excited about. She put up big numbers, I think, against, was it Bendigo? Yeah, um, I think she did. Things like that where it's all these, these fresh, young Australian talents making their WNBL debuts and making an impact straight away or at least having little wins like getting their first points within the first couple of rounds of the league. I reckon those kinds of things I really like celebrating. Going back on Amy Atwell and Chloe Bibby, we, you know, had high hopes for them considering how successful they were in their college careers and Amy Atwell having a taste of the WNBA with the LA Sparks. Mm. So we were very excited for them in our preview podcast and I don't know, just to see them in the starting five and just hitting the ground running in a brand-new league, brand-new team, like I just love seeing that stuff. I'm really, really, really stoked for both of them for the way that they have come into this league. The danger being that they'll be too good and they'll be poached next season to Europe or something, but (laughs) can't hold that against them. So things like that I enjoy seeing. Oh, actually, one highlight Mm. The last couple of rounds was in the Southside Flyers Melbourne Boomers game. So game one of three of the Michelle Tibbs Cup 
Yeah. Morgan Darby, Christy Wallace, and Maddie Rochi going at it. <laughs> oh, my word. Talk about we were saying our Loz Nicholson came out with something to prove about the last 12 months and missing the Opal squad. Maddie Rochi had Wally's number. Yeah. Wow. Wow. They, uh, the matchup between them, the head to head, the contest up and down the court was really exciting to watch. Uh, Rochi did not back down by any means, and Wally didn't either. Um, especially some of the ways that um, LJ would kind of hang up Wally on some of the screens for Rochi to come off and the way that they were fighting at every tooth and nail and every possession. I thought that was a highlight. And I think all these ones that you've picked, in particular this that last one, it speaks to that level of competition we were talking about earlier. This, this WNBL season, and I, look, we say it often, like from season to season, but this this season particularly, it seems like everybody's notched up the effort a couple of levels. Mm. Everybody's going full speed for the whole game. They're defending harder. They're attacking harder. There's, you know, when you are getting those, particularly those one-on-one situations, they're right up in their face. They're, nobody's backing down. That particular example that you quoted, Matty Rochi and, and, and Wally, it's just like, bang, it was there. It was a fight all the way through the game. Nobody stepped back. No, no. There was, yeah, no one was going easy on each other at all. There was uh, no love loss. <laughs> they were out for blood almost. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's... It says a lot of good things about the level of play that we're going to see coming up. But, you know, I, I just can't see that level of intensity if it keeps up for the entire season. you really got to start wondering what's going to happen when you get, you know, to the midpoint of the season. There's going to be some tired bodies out there. Yeah, I think injuries for sure. I mean, we're already seeing players injured this early, considering the schedule, the intensity. Um especially with some teams only really rotating in the first couple of rounds anyway. Some teams have only really played or rotated seven to eight players. Yep. Um, and Graffy made some a really good observation when she was commentating this weekend. It would get to points of the game where she's like, you know, the coaches need to start thinking about resting people. So even the game against the Flames-Bendigo game, it got to a point where it was very clear that the Flames weren't going to be able to come back and win. So Graffy made the good point of saying this is where you've got to try and rest some people. You know, when do you take Maley off and Griffith and Kelly Wilson? When do you start mm. resting them and putting your bench on? I think coaches this season are going to have to be a bit more conscious of that. And I think, yeah, considering injuries already, we don't want to get to a point in the season where, you know, the, the teams are running a really short roster because of injuries. I mean, we saw that last season because of COVID. Yep. Uh, we don't want it to be the case this season for injuries. But uh, hopefully some development players will get a shot and hopefully some more of the bench players will get a shot. Um, I touched on it before. The game, Adelaide game against Townsville, Sam Simons didn't get on the court at all, mm. which really surprised me. I don't, I'm not too sure if she's injured as well, if she's nursing something. Um, she didn't get on against the Boomers either. She was my, you know, if... The award was still Rookie of the Year, but she was my Rookie of the Year last year. 
yeah. now see her benched getting, you know, the likes of, um, and this is no disrespect to the other players, but getting the, you know, Borlais, Batiche, um, Brooke Basham, getting minutes before Sam Simons. I, I wonder what's going on there. Mm. So, you know, let me ask you something because you know, I'm probably going to get some hate mail for this, but do you think that maybe the NBL1 season should be maybe just a bit shorter to give the WNBL players who are playing in NBL1 an opportunity to get a break before the WNBL season kicks off? Um, I think it's going to be more around. I mean, the NBL1 season is pretty long, and I know that the NBL1 seasons in the different states start at different times and are run a little bit differently because I think in North, some rounds at North you are up for playing two games around as well. Mm. Ideally, it would be great if they could all start and end at roughly the same time because that would mean organising NBL1 nationals a lot easier and more likely that the NBL and WNBL players would be able to attend nationals because, as we saw in the inaugural nationals this year, a lot of NBL players couldn't make it because they were getting in preparation for the NBL Blitz in Darwin. Yeah. Um, So I I have a feeling they're probably going to tighten that up. Um, trying to get everything to start and end around the same time. Obviously going to be tricky because every league has a different number of teams too. NBL1 East is going to see, I think, four more clubs enter next season. Yep. Uh, I think it would actually come down to NBL and WNBL players are definitely in a position where they can negotiate their NBL1 contracts and say, look, I want to play, but I've got to be mindful of, you know, rest, recovery, work-life balance, all of those things. And if they're and, you know, prioritising uh, their health and fitness for their WNBL season, I think it will just come down and negotiating that, that with whatever NBL1 club they can. Because it's not like they're not going to get an NBL1 gig. I think they're in a pretty good position to have those conversations and negotiate how many games they play, if they play finals, if they don't play finals and things like that. I think for the sake of their health and fitness physically and mentally, it's probably a good position to be in if you can negotiate that. And not every WNBL player plays NBL1 either. So I know that the likes of, I'm trying to think of an example. Like I'm not too sure how much Wally played NBL1. Mm. I think she was probably associated with a South team, but I'm not too sure how much she actually played. Yeah, there's things like that where I just think it will come down to negotiation of contracts rather than shortening the season. Yeah, and the, and the question will also be if a WNBL club is signing a player for, you know, a couple of seasons, will they put uh, conditions on the contract to sort of say, listen, we, we need to make sure that you're fully rested and recovered before the WNBL season? Because the last thing we want is for you to roll in, you know, get an injury in the first couple of rounds, which, you know, is coming from the fact that you are playing at a high level all year round and you're not giving yourself an opportunity to just take that little bit of extra break to be fully recovered before we get into the season. Yeah, totally. And and the other thing is, you know, there are a whole bunch of other players that play NBL 1 and I think it would be a little bit unfair on them to shorten a season just to cater to a small group of players. Yeah, fair call. Yeah, so I think the shortening the season, yeah, you got to you got to think of the majority in that sense. Yeah, so I think it would come down to the individuals rather than shortening a whole season just for a couple of people. 
And you mentioned the NBL One East. It's going to be rolling into its second NBL One season, and there's been expansion. Mm-hmm. What do you think it's going to do in terms of the pool of players? Yeah, that's a really good question because uh, I know that there were some teams already perhaps struggling a little bit in terms of filling rosters and at least deep rosters. Mm. I suppose the teams that are re-entering, so from memory it's Penrith, Hornsby, Sydney Comets, and uh, the COE are jumping yep. in. They're going to be on East, which, first of all, I'm glad that the COE are finally in a comp permanently. Yes. Uh, as they should be. Uh, they probably should be playing in South in terms of level of competition. No disrespect to East, but South has been a very well-established and highly competitive league for a long time. Yep. It would probably be in COE's best interest to play South. So I don't know why they're not playing South. Who knows? We won't get into it. I think I'd, I'd, I'm pretty confident that Sydney Comets, Hornsby, Penrith wouldn't have entered NBL 1 unless they knew they had enough players and at least because going into NBL 1 is quite expensive for clubs. So yeah. they were actually three of, I think, four clubs initially who were quite hesitant to have NBL 1 launched in New South Wales initially, hence why they weren't in the inaugural season. I don't think they would have entered unless they knew they had the players to back it up. But I, I the, the thing is having players is one thing, but having quality players is another thing. So the thing that I am a little bit worried about, because I know that us at Crusaders have done it a lot in the past as well, they tend to rely too much on having the back end of the roster filled with the youth league team. And yep. then you find a lot of youth league players having to play their youth league game, uh, whether they're in the starting five, playing 30, 35 minutes a game, then expected to back up and play just as well or some of our players have just as much responsibility and play just as many minutes in the NBL 1 game. So that would be my biggest concern of the expansion in terms of A, making sure rosters are filled and sustainable, but B, having enough quality where uh, a level of quality amongst the league and then not having to rely so much on our youth league players. Not saying they're not quality, but I'm just saying that it's not sustainable for people to be playing two games a day. No, I, I get that. See, the other thing is I wonder how many of the, the teams that came in on the expansion also came in because they were losing talent to other clubs just because they could play NBL 1. Yeah, yeah, that's right as well. We've seen lots of NBL 1 East talent or at least talent that were, you know, originated from New South Wales have gone interstate. And you're right, I think it was because they were seeking a better playing experience in terms of higher quality level of play, better club professionalism, and also being able to have the opportunity to be paid to play, you know, have the experience of living in a rental with your teammates and doing things in the community and getting match payments. I mean, those types of things aren't very common in NBL One East. So it's full credit to them. to ha- It's a shame they had to go interstate to find that. But, yeah, like you said, that means that our talent is is going elsewhere. And so unless we have something just as good, if not better, to offer, they're not going to come back. Yeah. So I think that would have also helped to drive some of the teams that were like, yeah, we're not sure we want to get in the first season. Then seeing that they had club talent going elsewhere, which also meant that they would have been lost lost to those clubs for reps as well, means – hey, you know, we've got to take that step. We've got to get back into it so that we can start bringing talent back. Mm. 
And that's gonna, that's going to take a while. It's going to take some time, I think. And in the meantime, what they need to also start doing is maybe not so much focus on trying to get the talent back, but making sure the talent that we have, making sure that they stay. Yep. And that'll, that'll also mean that for some of these associations, they're going to have to get out there and start, you know, commercially connecting with, with sponsors. You know, they're going to have to look at, at local businesses and that they can connect with for sponsorship to be able to generate enough revenue to be able to, to give players the payments that they need to be able to stay with the club and develop in, in the NBL one and also bring back talent or bring new talent in from interstate. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, some clubs have even toyed with the idea of getting imports, which isn't a bad idea either, but I feel like if you've got money for imports, you've got money to pay your players that were born and bred in the clubs that they're playing for. Yeah, I kind of sit in two minds on the idea of of imports for NBL1, only because, like you said, you got local talent who are missing out on an opportunity to develop and play at a higher level of competition. But bringing in the imports, it starts to to become a bit of a, you know, you're weaponizing the budget. I think um, I'm always talking from the standpoint of coming from an, an MBO1 East club who don't have any finances, yeah. essentially, um, when we don't have any finances but, you know, to learn that the men's team have paid for someone to come over and then they're really not very good uh, but the same finances or planning isn't put into the women's team, that's when it annoys me but... If I think about some of the other well-established MBL1 clubs from other states, you know, the team that comes to mind is Ringwood who made the MBL1 national finals this year against um, Warwick Senators. Oh, Warwick Senators as well. Both of those teams had imports. They also did a good job of securing their local talent as well to stay in those teams. So the Warwick Senators having like Clinch Hoycart and now Chloe Foster who's been elevated to the Perth Lynx roster. They had um, an import from Lithuania whose name escapes me, but she was great. But at the same time, it was still their local talent that was on full display and, and Ringwood did the same. So I think in those situations for me it's okay where you're bringing in imports just to complement the local talent that you've secured. But when you're a club who isn't really financially in a good position, and you want to kind of prioritise getting imports to make your teams better rather than showing some loyalty and saying, hey, actually, let's make sure we secure our local talent first before they go elsewhere. That's when, for me, probably need to start um, having a bit of a think about it. Yeah, it's probably something that hasn't been an issue to date for the NBL1 generally, Mm. but I think it's something that's going to become more of an issue because there's a lot of teams there, and if they want to attract better talent, they've got to be on a winning trajectory, there, there will be some clubs that are going to do what you said. They're going to spend to get a, an import in and maybe not necessarily work out in the best for local talent so that they can get their profile further up and bring new people in. And that's not necessarily going to be good for the competition as a whole because then, like I said, you're weaponizing the budget. It becomes who's going to spend more than someone else to be able to try and get the talent in and what's going to get cut. Mm. So, okay, well, we've talked a lot about nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think there was something else I was going to, oh, I, I suppose in terms of the WNBL based on what I've seen from the first two rounds, the things that I'm looking forward to 
well, I'm hoping some adjustments will be made. Like, you know, a team like Adelaide Lightning on paper, I really hope that they start to click a little bit more and get some wins. But I think a, a general thing that I've taken from the first two rounds is that some of the teams that have imports can afford to utilize their imports a lot better. So the Flames have Willoughby and Shervin. Yep. Oh, I mean, the Melbourne Boomers have Tiff Mitchell, and she's been in the team for two weeks in a row. So, I mean, she's killing it. She doesn't need to be utilized better because she's very well ingrained in the in their system. And Nelson Adota is their other import for the Boomers, so I'm hoping that she starts to find her way a little bit because she's got tremendous potential. But I think perhaps, you know, the Flames game I saw and the Caps, they each have talent. They have two talented imports in each of those teams. I would hope that there will be some adjustments made to get their imports more involved on the offensive end, Mm. Um, especially when they're in a scoring drought. Have a go-to play of like, right, so-and-so is, um, you know, Cohen is getting hot on the short corner on the right side. We're running a play to go to her. These are her options, you know what I mean? Even when, what other game was it? Um, Oh, the Adelaide game, Kirsten Bell against Townsville. She was lighting it up. She had like three threes. Yep. I'm like, let's go to that. That's obviously her strength. You know, she's come in as a known three-point shooter. When when your chips are down, run a play for her. Get her hot. Get get her some more scoring options. It's just things like that I feel like can be utilised a little bit more as a whole. And, you know, at, for point of comparison, Townsville Fire in that same game did a very good job of making sure that their import, Hawkins, I mean, she had a 33-point game. They made a very good point of making sure parts of the offense were either going through her or that the offense was run in a, in a way that she had a prime scoring option. So they ran a lot of stuff where there was a lot of, like, screens at the bottom of the split line and the top of the key, you know, to purposely run that whole play to the very end, get her posted up inside under the basket, just stuff like that. I thought it was really, really great from Townsville and I'd hope that some of the other clubs that have great imports like Adelaide, Canberra, Sydney can perhaps implement some more plays to get their imports more efficient on the offensive end. Yeah, it's actually it's a good point that you bring up because I feel that some of the clubs, and you mentioned it, aren't necessarily utilising their imports as the impact players that we would expect them to be. And it's been a bit strange that they haven't done that. Again, it's early It's early in the season. I think they're feeling their way out at the moment, partly because, let's be honest, this season's going to be pretty close. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, you always, whether it's WNBL, NBL, we've always got to give our imports that good uh, three, four-week leeway to adjust to the league because the playing style and the intensity and the, and the way the referees control the game is very different to overseas. Yeah. So you've got to give them that leeway. But at the same time, the best way to get someone involved and get someone used to it is run some plays for them. Like run some plays for them, give them more scoring opportunities, give them more opportunities to score, uh, explore some scoring opportunities. That's a great way to get them a little bit more involved where they don't have to, you know, perhaps rely on getting themselves involved in being, you know, a good rebounder or creating their own their own shots off a one-on-one situation or something like that. So. I, I just hope that, yeah, when, when the likes of Kirsten Bell is, you know, shooting a high percentage from the three-point line and you're losing a game, perhaps that's something you need to go to. Mm, I don't disagree with you on that. Okay. Round three was going to bring some, some more interesting outcomes, I'm sure. And 
It'll be interesting to see how things kind of pan out over this next couple of weeks, particularly with the import situation, particularly those imports that may not necessarily be having the impact that, as I said, we we would expect from them. And look, I also got to say, we got to thank Jimmy Smith from uh, SEN for helping us out with with Shervin's name. Oh, we just didn't know. And he had the... (laughs) opportunity to ask the question on everyone's lips how do you pronounce it let us know how we pronounce it properly. i'm so glad because i think on a couple of the games it has been mispronounced a little bit and so i kind of was lucky where i'm like thankfully jimmy and and our friend julian o'brien from hoops capital let us know it's sherman yes it is it's sherman. say it confidently so that was their assist to us it was very appreciative but I think round three, the game for me is going to be Townsville Flyers. On the yeah. 16th, and that's probably the yeah the Flyers' first proper away game. Yes, yep. That's on the 16th, so Wednesday the 16th, 5.30 in Townsville. I think this will be a really good litmus test for Townsville to see where they really measure up in the leagues this early. Mm. I, I think it's going to be high, still be highly competitive, but with Zatina potentially still out, um, I wonder how Townsville are going to go inside. Hawkins is going to have her work cut out for her again, so I'm really looking forward to seeing that. But that, for me, is going to be the game of the week, I think, the game of the round. Yeah, I, I'll be honest. I've been looking forward to that one. It's a shame it's a Wednesday game. It would have, would have been an absolute cracker for the weekend. But, mm. hey, you know, we'll take it. We'll take it, yeah. <laughs> and the only other thing I want to say before we wrap up, in terms of predictions and things like that, we often – like to create some conversation in our micro and basketball community about who we think is going to win, perhaps sometimes go as far to say how many they're going to win by, just purely to create conversation with like-minded people and create some excitement ahead of the game. Uh, Last week on Twitter, I think I tweeted about the derby game between Southside Flyers and Melbourne Boomers. Um, the two teams who I was predicting to be in the grand final. I don't think I tweeted who I thought was going to win the game. Perhaps I did tip the Flyers, but only by a small margin. And unfortunately, that attracted an account that seems to be created purely for gambling and, and betting on games. So I just want to go on the record and say that my intention of tweeting things like predictions Uh, game previews and things like that is purely to create conversation with our community and to create a bit of buzz before the game. I personally don't participate in gambling or online gambling and I don't feel comfortable contributing to someone's decisions around their online gambling either. So when I tweet or share my uh, predictions, it isn't for the intention of uh, supporting gambling or to fuel anyone's participa- choice to participate in online gambling either. Um, so I also just want to say as well, I won't be responsible for if you choose to place a bet based on what I personally say or tweet as a conversation piece, I take no responsibility for the outcome of the decisions you make around your gambling. If you choose to place a bet, whether you win or lose, I'm not going to take any responsibility because ultimately it was your decision to make based on a prediction that I made. Um, so I just wanted to go on the record and say that and quash any association I have with or not even association, just quash any hint 
of gambling around myself and the online community. Yeah, that's a fair call. I mean, look, I agree with you. We like to talk about stuff like that. We like to talk about, you know, who do we think could win this game? Who do we think, you know, is it going to be close? Is it going to be a blowout? But it's because we like talking about stuff like that. And it's certainly not not related to gambling in any way, shape or form. And it shouldn't be taken as being a tip or a suggestion of some way that someone wants, you know, to bet on based off of that, that conversation. Because, look, let's be honest, <laughs> there's been times when we have been so wrong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've said lots of times my clothes don't fit because I'm eating all my words from what I say on the podcast that are wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's so face it. What we the, say so seriously. Like, seri- <laughs> like, that's right. I mean, let's look at the World Cup and how oh that was God. looking for a while there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. knew nothing about basketball at all. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I honestly went on so many different podcast recordings talking about the World Cup and predictions and players to watch. First day of the World Cup, everything I said had turned to dust. So don't take what I say seriously. But at yeah. the same time, if you choose to gamble, if that's what you like to do, no judgment from me if that's what you choose to do. I don't care. Do what you want. If you have the capacity to make decisions, then I don't care. You can do what you want. But I'm just saying I'm not taking any responsibility for your outcome, win or lose, based on what I tweet. So I just want to completely separate myself from it. Yep, fair enough. Okay, Jacinta, as always, it's been great uh, having a conversation, this time about nothing really in particular. And um, can't wait till we uh, we get together to record our next podcast. And in the meantime, have a great time. Yeah, yeah, great. Thank you. You too. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.